Today's episode is brought to you by Slayhouse Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. Hey everybody, it's Jeremy from Slayhouse Publishing presents Lit Bits, and I'm always patting myself on the back that I get it right, even though our guest today said that she got it right on the first try. Um, um, I wouldn't say first try. I I definitely (laughs) have screwed it up talking to my Alexa more than once, but I've got it down now. I feel like you're you're approaching the point where you've gotten it right more times than you've gotten it wrong. But Probably. you got it wrong so spectacularly. <laughs> We're never going to forget it. I'm never going to forget I, it. I didn't even think about that from a, an Alexa point of yeah. view. Like, so I have to say, like, Alexa, play Slay House Publishing Presents Lit Bits Podcast. <laughs> New episode, and you have to say all of that, or it doesn't play. If you just like drop the podcast, it just is like cannot find. So you have to say the whole thing. I'm learning new things. Yeah, I love it. That's that's my goal. That was my goal. Just freak Alexa out. (laughs) That was was the naming process. I love it. I I screwed up a lot, uh, but now I have mastered it. We're joined today uh, by a very special guest who is actually with us in the studio in the studio k west author of wild things will roam yes that's me uh so our our brief little intro that we're going to go by is k west likes to create worlds readers can get lost in writing stories for people who want to believe in magic and like to have their hearts broken all right and her debut novel wild things will roam is available now online everywhere books are sold when she's not writing she's a mom of two moonlighting as a cover and graphic design artist uh there should i i should have put a space there the two that you're a mom to aren't moonlighting as the Correct. cover and graphic Correct. design artist yeah, yeah. yeah you need a yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh gym owner uh and yoga instructor while also working daylight hours as an it professional yeah. So welcome. You are busy. I, Lots yeah. of hats being worn. Lots of hats. I have a really big head, so that helps. <laughs> <laughs> They're just a bunch of small hats sewn together into one hat that I'm wearing. So, so how did you get into writing? That's a. It's always the first question, and I never know the answer. It's like a minor existential crisis. Like, who am I, and what do I what do I do? Um, how do you get into writing? Well, they start sometime in I think kindergarten, first grade, and they help you with that. Um, and then after a while, you start to perfect the art. No, um, I, I, we went really technical there. (laughs) Sorry. That was a really good answer. Uh, no, I, I started writing, uh, in school. Uh, and I think my experience there was, I think like most people who end up writing things is that someone somewhere was like, you're pretty good at this. You should write. And then you get real, uh, cocky about that. And you're like, I should write. And then you do. And you're like, this is amazing. And then you give it to people and they're like, it's trash. And you're like, oh my God, it is trash. And then (laughs) then you have to like totally backpedal. And then again, the existential crisis part two, who am I? Why would I even do this? And then eventually you get past that hurdle and you're like, this is, this is something I like. But I started writing, um, this book specifically after writing lots of books that did not go anywhere. Uh, and I started this one with some friends after I had a dream and I was like texting them about the dream and we just kind of went back and forth and it became this novel idea and then that just jokingly I was like I'm gonna pin the first like couple pages and send it to him because we made this whole big stupid banter thing (laughs) and then um yeah the first pages weren't terrible and it just kind of kept kept going after that and it was you know that's incredible awesome I mean, incredible is a stretch, but I'll take it. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. living the dream, really. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You you make your life. You got to manifest it. So. Yeah. So uh, this was your your debut novel. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you talked a little bit about, you know, kind of the process of, of trying to discover what you were doing with the characters, discover what you were doing with the, the story. Sure, yeah. Um, what, what were some of the pitfalls that you kind of fell into through this process, and how did you work your way out of that, you know, to create this novel? Sure. Um, so I think, <clears throat> I think perspective uh, was the very first major pitfall. Uh, so I was doing a lot of head hopping at first, thinking that I had an understanding of what it meant to be like a third person omniscient narrator, but it just kind of came across as real like, whose head am I in? Uh, this is very confusing. And then <clears throat> I got some notes back on that from someone who was like, ah, oh, this is terrible. I was like, oh, you're right. Oh my God, you're right. Uh, so then I uh, went back and, and started to actually play around with perspective. And I think that was the, the big lesson learned for me I rewrote this book. I learned to write on this book. Um, and I rewrote it probably seven different times as far as like oh, wow. like almost starting from scratch and being like, I'm going to like grab pieces that I like, but the rest of this is trash. Lots of trash. <laughs> Lots of trash talk. Uh, and um, anyway, uh, the perspective part. So, so the last few times, every time it got a pass, uh, it got a pass from a different character's perspective. And so I would put in these like placeholders where, you know, I'd be telling it from one character's, like we're talking about, you know, Liv, right? Started the whole thing from Liv's perspective, came back, um, fleshed out Lash as a person, and then came back and then added in Ander. Um, and it was one of those things where as I wrote out scenes, I would discover more and more about each person and then have to make adjustments based on, like, oh, this person wouldn't actually do that. Like, in the live version, this placeholder version of Lash might do this, but the actual person Lash would never do this. And so then it kind of evolved that way. And uh, so I got to the point where I could use the perspectives to say different things because they noticed different things. Um, that is such a fascinating process for me to see, like, the characters grow and evolve and become... Like they they start dictating their own actions, their own chain, their own behaviors. Oh, they make yeah. decisions. You just yeah. you just set the scene, and yep. they do the thing. Well, I think it's really interesting too that each of the different characters kind of see the other characters very differently. You know, when Liv uh, interacts with um, it was Lash and and Ander, right, mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. the brothers, she has a very <clears> different like vision of who they are in comparison to what they think of themselves. Absolutely, and I think that. Not many novels that I've seen with multiple per perspectives really kind of give us that kind of a scope, right? I think it's a a really kind of performative act of writing, but also as a reader, it's really interesting to live in that headspace and then kind of encounter these different characters very differently. It, it gives them a bit more dimension, I think, right? Yeah. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, so that's something I set out to do um, specifically is to explore that disconnect between how what your internal monologue, how that influences the way that you're perceived. And so like you think you, of yourself a certain way based on what you are hearing or seeing inside your head. Um, but then how that comes across might be vastly different. I think Lash is a good example of that. That like, oh, definitely. He's, he's kind of anxiety riddled and uh, like very insecure, but it comes across very much like an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> and like those are not. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I did. That's uh, what I did enjoy about your book. I, I did enjoy. <laughs> I, um, 
I so many, <laughs> so many. I mean, so many uh, genre, like um, so many genre stories out there. The characters are just so flat and yep. so one-dimensional, and to have that kind of multi-multi-person perspective in this is really, really refreshing because it personalizes the the mm-hmm. outside world that's kind of encroaching on them in this. this. Yeah, I, we've talked about genre work, you know, previously, and and some of what makes genre work good or what makes genre work kind of bad. I think a lot of genre writers think that um, everything has to be really plot driven. You know, we were talking to, to Almakatsu last week, mm-hmm. um, and she, she was, said she didn't like the idea of like genre versus literary. She said what makes it literary are the characters for her. So right, so it's, it sounds like you're taking kind of the same approach to it, or or kind of. Yeah, I think, I mean, if you're asking whether or not I'm plot driven, the answer to that is absolutely not. I, I like, I write and then come back and I'm like, oh, shit, plot. And then have to, like, that's why there were seven drafts of this book. <laughs> I gotta figure out what happens. Uh huh. What's actually happening here? Um, so I, I often think about, like, the utility of fiction, mm-hmm. right? Um, this has been something of, like, my. Just my recent um, obsession is, is trying to track what is the utility of of fiction what do they what does it add to our lives and i think especially because your book is um a specific subgenre of like post-apocalyptic fiction it is yeah yeah. so can you can we dig in just a little bit what does post-apocalyptic fiction mean for you and and why do you think that you know in a world of like a pandemic right (laughs) stuff like this is really kind of heavy i mean what can this this genre kind of give to us how do how do we interact with it fruitfully yeah so um it's interesting you mentioned that so post-apocalyptic uh, this is a post-apocalyptic novel and i i always refer to it as being kind of post-war because for some reason back to that internal like perception versus external perception it never felt like a post-apocalyptic book f- apocalyptic book for me um and then people be like oh yeah it's like this post-apocalypse and i'm like oh like i'm picturing mad max and i'm like why well, like it's not like that uh but i also <laughs> very much understate how violent it is too so people will be like oh this book's very violent and i'm like it is and then i like start <laughs> thinking about it and i'm like oh, i guess so i just like it doesn't resonate with me that way uh which you know just kind of sounds not nonsensical now that i say that but um <laughs> Yeah, it's a weird time to be in dystopia, to answer your question. The book actually um, released on the episodic platform in March of 2020. Um, so if you're curious what else was going on in the world, <laughs> it was, there was a, the start of a major pandemic. And so uh, it, was, it was an interesting time. Um, there are definitely some thematic elements in it that, that life started to kind of imitate art for me. And I was like, oh, this is not. It's, it felt weird to promote um, because I felt like people were very um, traumatized by what was happening around us. And so it felt bad to be like, hey, if you are just lost in trauma, here's some extra trauma for you <laughs> if you just want that. But, um, but to, to your point, I think the, the purpose that this kind of novel serves um, is one that is cathartic, I think that we're obsessed and have been obsessed for a while now with this post-apocalyptic world. Um, and I think, and we'll talk probably a little more about this when we talk about Bradbury and the Velt, but like, I think, I think we're very disconnected from the style of living that we were designed for. And so we feel this like kind of uselessness and we long for this desire to be able to perform 
these skills that we'd like to think we have, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so um, for me, that was a lot of the setting. I, I, like, I wanted it to be relatively modern, but I wanted it to be in a wilderness. And how do I get people in a wilderness in a modern setting and so it was just like by necessity post-war um which is probably why i'm not very good at thinking of it like a post-apocalypse but um <laughs> but yeah i mean we, we had that obsession for a long time we're, we're we're doomsday you know fantasizers we want the world to end a little bit because then one we're no longer responsible for all the trivial daily stuff that we're like bogged down by but also um because we think we like to think that like i would totally be good at these things i'll be honest with you guys i would absolutely not i would be a disaster in a disaster situation i'd be like i have some wikipedia knowledge on how to build a toothbrush guys uh but beyond that i'm not i'm not saving the day so i don't know if that was concise answer but no it's great it's that that gets me thinking because i think then about that internal versus how i'm perceived and internally i'm like i would be the hero of the apocalypse you know i would save everybody and everyone else is looking at me like man you'd die within like 10 minutes uh well (laughs) i yeah i mean yes that's always my concern is like i i would panic uh i am i am a like (laughs) what is it uh fight or flight uh freeze or fawn i am like collapse in tears so like something (laughs) something startles me i literally curl into a ball uh (laughs) Just like, ah, so I think about this a lot. I think about like, you know, survival skills. I'm like, I don't know how to slaughter a cow. Right. Fucking worthless. Right. Right. They just stand there. They, yeah. That's true. They just let you. It's real tragic. (laughs) No doubt. Yeah. No, it's a, so you're, yes. And, and I got lucky in this book, um, because you know, it kind of filtered out the sort of people who would survive. Um, and so, like, the the Pharaoh brothers ended up being Romani American uh, by virtue of necessity also later. Like, they didn't originally start that way. Mm-hmm. And then it was, like, trying to find people with skill sets that, like, would be conducive to this. Um, but then also, um, there is a l- lot of room f- for error that I'm like, well, they maybe just wouldn't know either, so it's fine. Like, I don't know, and it, they probably don't know. <laughs> so we're just going to build that in and, and pretend that it's fine. Yeah. So uh, another thing that, that we found pretty interesting about your book was um, kind of the, the reliance on non-Eurocentric mythology. Um, we're constantly talking about how fantasy, especially I think as a genre has just been like governed, ruled by, uh, Eurocentric myths for, uh, I mean, yeah, for like forever. It's like, you know, Tolkien did it and then everybody (laughs) else just mirrored Tolkien for so long. And now we're starting to see some resurgence of non-Eurocentric mythologies, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of woven into the tapestry of a book. Can you share with us um, just a little bit of, of, you know, what you were kind of going for with regards to like the, the Cretes that show up in your yeah. story and some of the other mythologies you weave in? Yeah. Um, so I think to your point about the Eurocentric stuff, that's, that's the result of us just being culturally Eurocentric, right? Because oh, you have true. all of yeah. these different disparate cultures, especially, you know, in countries like America um, that have their own backgrounds and their own mythologies uh, but at least in, in, in my case I'm I'm uh, a descendant my grandmother's from the Philippines and so in in our case there was this mythology that belonged to the people that was stripped of them by colonialization in the 1600s and so like 
for me, there's been this like big interest in rediscovering some of that, but also that's that's a rediscovery as a culture. It's not just something that uh, like I didn't happen to know. No one knows it. So people are trying to piece together from like documentation, like what existed prior to the Spanish settlement. And it's, I don't know, it's really interesting. Um, so back to the Eurocentric thing. That's why I think we lean that way because Europe kind of took over the world and oh, yeah, people, abs- that's absolutely. what was written down. Right. Um, but uh, so yeah, so uh, Filipino um, and I am very, I've gotten really down this rabbit hole. Uh, I actually stumbled onto uh, Filipino mythology uh, accidentally. So I was trying to plug in some stuff and one of the main characters in my book, Liv, is Filipino um, as a recommendation from a friend of mine. Cause she was like, hey, you know, I originally wrote her to be blonde. Uh, and then my friend was like, why don't you make her Filipino? Cause there's like none of you. And I was like, that's a great idea. And so, you know, that's literally what happened. Uh, I, I know, I wish it were deeper than that. Like I wish I had some like moral, like this is why I'm doing this, but it was, it was truly a recommendation from someone else. And I was like, okay. I mean, not to, not to, to cut you off. You can cut me off, is please. That, is that not necessary? I mean, like, like I, I, I don't know. I feel like there are so many blonde protagonists and yet, you know, like there are also a lot of Filipino kids who would like <laughs> yeah. to see themselves reflected in fiction. Yeah. So, you know, and, and, and maybe not even Filipino kids, but, but sure. kids who are not blonde kids who want to see more diverse representation of themselves on yeah. screen or in a book or in a story. Well, I think that it's interesting you say that because, again, it, it speaks to where my lens was at when I started this, right? That, like, I wanted to write a book that had a female protagonist, and even that stretch was that she was, like, white and blonde. Like, that was as far as my brain could stretch to be like, <laughs> ah, yes, this protagonist. Uh, and so it took me a while to, like, wrap my head around, like, oh, yeah, there isn't, like, there's so little diversity that I wasn't even trying to picture myself in the story like I wasn't even thinking about you know plugging myself in in that way the way you resonate with a with a protagonist uh so anyway yeah no so she had to make that statement for me and I think there was a a sense of um insecurity there too that like if you write a character that looks like you now you run into that like well this is obviously the author insert like right and (laughs) and so then I was like I don't know if I want to do that because like then that's just going to put me there. Um, but I am glad that I did, especially because the one that I'm working on now, which is actually the prequel to this book, uh, is very much rooted in Filipino folklore. And it's based around Liv's mother. And so uh, it's been really cool for me because it is more of a self under, self-exploration, I guess, uh, an ex- exploration of my mom and her experience as a first-generation America mm. American and uh, things like that. So, so can you... Can you tell us a little bit about Filipino mythology? Yeah, absolutely. So you guys actually, I listened with bated breath as you went through all of your like vampiric <laughs> monsters. I was like, all the right, Wikipedia all right. Wikipedia article went, yeah. Jeremy wrote. <laughs> yeah, so you guys were like going down this list and you eventually kind of ended up in Asia. And I was like, oh no, are they going to say it? I was like, I was waiting, waiting. And it was like the second to last one you mentioned was the Menon and Gaul. And I was like, yes, there it is. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, did uh, you did it, you did it. Uh, and, and that is actually... Actually, so to speak on your your vampirism, it is a like she she is like a vampiric baby eater, um, and so like they they disassemble themselves and like their top half sprouts wings and they leave their bottom half just like out in the woods, uh, and then they fly up and like stick their long spooky 
needle tongues in through like the thatched roofing of your house and steal your baby's soul like just suck it right out of the belly of pregnant women and so you have to like put up garlic to like basically it's like the adobo ingredients like whatever <laughs> like you need like garlic and vinegar and like it's it's interesting um but but eat you, your adobo yeah you don't want to get eaten by that well but but to be fair i think it's it's something so and again monsters i think always play a role um at, for telling some sort of cultural narrative right and so obviously child loss is a very real thing mm. uh, and it is much easier to attribute that to some you know spooky external factor than for it to be um you know something that is just like an act of god or just a a you know bad luck situation it's a lot easier to say like evil forces did this to me um and so i think there's there's some solace there but it also becomes like a fun thing for kids like sort of like you like run out like because you can you can salt the bottom half and i think there's actually a, a part in wild things or Rome where they sort of like loosely brush over this but like you can salt the bottom half if you find it and then the man and girl won't be able to reattach and so she'll she'll die so she's got to be able to like put her torso back together or else that is terrifying and she like picture. lives with you right so she's <laughs> like like up. fair-skinned like pretty hair um, like lives in town. Anybody could be this gal, you know. Oh wow! So it's kind of this weird, uh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> like monsters among you. Vibes. That's wild. That is terrifying. I'm just, I'm just thinking about this. So like, these are the kind of night, nighttime stories that I grew up with. Um, <laughs> so it really like formative, formative years. Uh, but I, I will say it, it very much went hand in hand. So I grew up religious. Uh, my mom is still a minister. Um, my grandmother in the, came from the Philippines where they are predominantly Catholic. And there is very much this ability, and I, I would describe it now as like magical realism when we're talking about genre, where like the magic just sort of like also lives. Yeah. And that mm -hmm. is very much the experience that is lived in, in cultures outside of America. And as a kid, that was really fascinating to me that like, that my grandmother would speak about like supernatural creatures and like superstitions alongside her faith. Like they weren't disparate. Like they were, mm. they were very much two sides of the same coin for her. Um, and I, as a kid did not understand how you could do that. Cause they seemed like they were two very opposing forces. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's actually a lot of what started on this this storyline was my husband was like, you know, everybody always says, write what you know. Like, you know a bunch of weird shit. Put it in there. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I did, yeah. Uh, he offers, honestly, the best advice. Uh, like, don't tell jokes. You're not funny. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yeah. So, so I did. I started writing that in there because I did have all these kind of fun, spooky things. My grandmother used to terrorize us because um, she thought it was funny, which is fine. <laughs> it, that's why I collapse when I'm scared. Uh, <laughs> it's fine. Um, but yeah, so that, that kind of interwoven interwoven uh, relationship is something I wanted to explore. And I think to your earlier point, that is something that people are hungry for because we've seen the Greek gods. Like we yes. get them. We know them. Um, we could probably identify them by photo. Like, you know, I get Apollo needs to be blonde. Like that's, you know, I got... I got energy there, um, but <laughs> but I think uh, there's a lot of similar or just as interesting stories that exist in these other cultures, and and people are hungry for that. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I I know that uh, I continue to look forward to 
you know, discovering fantasy books. I think that, 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 you know, show me something I don't know because, uh, I'm, I mean, maybe it's just the world lit professor in me who's just constantly, (laughs) you know, every semester I change my, I change my set of readings to include something I know nothing about um, because I want to have that process of discovery alongside my students where, you know, we can kind of experience something new together. And, um, and also I want to model for them, you know, what curiosity looks like and, and basically not have the answer. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like to find your answer, to, to try to contextualize things, to contextualize stories. And, um, and I, I, I think that we just need more of that. I mean, we're, we're a global community. Mm-hmm. So why is it that there's only one kind of level of discourse with regards to our culture that we continue to see when there's so much more to offer, right? Right, right. And I think we're kind of scrambling to relearn that, um, which is something that is, you, you've talked about themes, like you have like themes you're aiming for and then you have like the secondary themes that just right. sort of evolve out. And I feel like Wild Things Will Roam very much became about lost culture uh, on accident. Like that was something that I didn't realize I was trying to explore until I got there and was like, oh yeah, like there is truly this sense of like, this is almost a dark age now. We've got culture, we've got Mm -hmm. memory of culture, but like what does acting it out look like? And I think in in the world that we are living in now and the way things are changing so quickly around us, there's that same sense of like, you're rooted in your day-to-day task. Like this is, I'm, I'm getting up and I'm going through the motions and this is what I'm doing. And then at the end of every day, everything has changed so much that you don't even really grasp it until, you know, months have passed, passed and you look back and you're like, wow, I'm different. Everything's so different. Um, and I feel like the characters in these stories have had that similar experience as far as like, they have been, you know, head down doing the work and just looked up and are like, what? the yeah. hell like <laughs> i think that's kind of like the the quintessential anxiety of our moment right mm-hmm. um i know that there there was a, a i want to see more of that actually in dystopian fiction yeah i, th- I think there's a I, I it serves a purpose too yeah. right i think that um it was marshall berman um he wrote uh he wrote a book called like all that is solid melts into air or something like mm. that um taken from marx right sure um but he he basically kind of talks about like the, the the modern anxiety is just the fact that the world changes so dramatically mm-hmm. from day to day, and the average person cannot keep up with the the change that we kind of undergo. And, and so, in a way, I think perhaps the dystopian premise helps mm-hmm. us try to like reorient ourselves to the moment we live in or or the lives that we lead because the if we can understand that process then perhaps we may equip ourselves to better deal with the world as we see and experience it yeah i think so your question on like what purpose do you think it serves uh so horror does this right horror does this well which is that it explores things you are afraid of in a context where you are relatively safe it's like why we like mm-hmm. horror movies because like I get the rush of being scared without actually being in perilous danger. And and I think that that is it allows us to explore not only those emotions or the hypotheticals of it but to get that that release of like mm. I have this anxiety, I need it to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. I need to do something with it. And so we seek that kind of thrill or catharsis to just like have an outlet. It's like why you watch, you know, 
the family stone at Christmas and cry. That's, that might be very specific. <laughs> uh, that might just be me. But that movie makes me cry every time. And it always feels real good because <laughs> it's an anxiety, right? Like, you're like, oh, yeah, I also am scared of losing family members or whatever, you know. And you're like, oh, let me get this out so that I don't have to just dwell. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about some of the fiction that inspired you um, in writing okay. Wild Things Will Roam. Um, I think Jeremy kind of identified that uh, Richard Matheson was maybe in You influence. mentioned it to me, sure. right? Yeah, I am yeah. legend. I mean, yeah, it, that, that's the opening scene, right? They're tossing bodies into a, a pit. Um, so I don't, yeah. and I remember you guys talking about I am legend, and I want y'all to know that I was li listening at home on my Alexa uh, product <laughs> placement, and I, <laughs> I was like wanting to talk back to y'all. And was like, I can't do that because they can't hear me. Uh, this is pre-recorded. <laughs> I'm in my kitchen washing dishes, and I'm like, okay, but. And I was like, no, that's fine. That's fine. Head down. They don't. They don't hear you. Send um, us angry mail. I love that. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. It was fine. Um, but yeah, so it's absolutely a uh, uh, heavy inspiration because in in. I am legend. Uh, you know, he walks past these pits where they had burned the bodies oh, right, effectively. Yeah. Um, and that was something that was very clear to me from the very beginning was like, what do you do with dead bodies? And that seemed like a very mm. useful and practical way to dispose of, of people. But like, how long would those run for? I mean, literally, I'm th you're thinking... <laughs> it's kind of wild to think about, honestly. But uh, so that was, I mean, from the get-go, we start with Liv in the prologue next to a pit. I mean, they are burning bodies. So that's... Mm -hmm. Step one. But also, um, and y'all talked a little bit about this when you talked about the films or the adaptations, that uh, the novel I Am Legend is very introspective, mm. right? Yes. And it is that same disconnect. What he perceives himself to be and the way he is perceived by the world at large are vastly different. Uh, and what the work of it looks like for him, day-to-day -day monotony and, like, the actual labor that goes into being a legend is not your superhero, like, fighting crime. Like, he's not blowing up buildings, and he's not, like, living life on the edge in this big, like, the rock-level adrenaline rush, right? <laughs> he's not smoldering uh, at any point. He's literally, like, reboarding up his windows and listening right. to the vampires taunt him, and he's, like, doing his day-to-day. -day. And so... Anyway, I, that part was always super fascinating to me. Uh, I think that's why adaptations fail on it, because yeah. uh, I think that you, it's difficult to capture introspection and lack of dialogue in a way that is mm. interesting in film. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I, I, that was I, my two cents on y'all's y'all's yeah, whole yeah, yeah, spiel. Yeah. I was like, no, I, I have I, feelings I, about I think this. You're totally right. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I I uh, I was really struck by how how mad I got at some of the adaptations. You know, with the Charlton Heston movie, I feel like what they were trying to do was like kind of take this story and re-allegorize it for right. their political moment. Yes. Because that, that movie, I think, came in, in uh, what, the, the 60s maybe? Yeah. Omega Man? Yeah. Maybe, yeah. 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 I was going to say 50s or 60s, somewhere. I think, I can't remember. No, I think it's, I think it's, yeah, I think it's yeah. the 60s. Yeah, so I, I can't remember exactly which year. I could Google it. I was like, shit, but, right, um, just look that up real quick. <laughs> yeah, but I think like 60s sci-fi, you know, w was really a lot more. 71. Oh, 71. 71, even later, okay. Well, but you have to remember, 71 is also still the 60s, right? Yeah, because yeah. Cause it's, not, well, it's, no, not, right. it's not a hard delineation at you're 1970. Right. We roll right. into like two or three. Right. Yeah, so I, I think 
breathing from 60s sci-fi sure. right like <laughs> it, it's all about like trying to re-allegorize for what's going on at that moment in the late 60s especially was a moment of like real hotbed racial tension yes right so and the vietnam war and the vietnam oh yes we can't yep. forget the so, war as well there was a very um, tumultuous time in america <laughs> yeah so i think omega man is is trying to have a conversation um especially about you know race relations and yeah. it becomes a lot more about gosh even like the narrative of like the white savior because mm -hmm. um oh man that it, it's so heavy-handed <laughs> at the end there um yeah okay but yeah. there's no other role for charlton heston i feel like like he, if, there, if there ever was a white savior yeah. Yeah. i mean besides obviously jesus who was white um there is charlton heston <laughs> like, we, we need to call rich handley back and have a have a conversation about Charlton Heston and Planet of the Apes. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's the best plot twist. I don't care how many times, I don't care how many times that's been parodied. Like that was, yeah. when it happened, it was excellent. Oh, yeah. it's, it's oh yeah. absolutely brilliant. Yeah. But I think that's kind of the, yeah, just the moment. And, and I think that when we recontextualize something in an adaptation, not always is it bad, but I, I also think like, you know, it just, it, it kind of fundamentally transforms the experience and that transformation isn't always like the best choice i think though it it has to right so i started uh in my naivete when i started writing wild things around i was like i want to write something that will that will stand the test of time as one does right it's very arrogant you're like i'm gonna i'm gonna Close. write something that'll that'll last forever and then i had these like stupid little references i really wanted to include and i realized that you cannot you can't do anything that's not of the moment you are in. Like that is your lens. That is where yes. you are. And so yeah. adaptation, you know, the book was written and then the adaptation came several years later. And so they're looking at it from a totally different lens. And what it, what it meant to them at that cultural moment is what they translated it to, whether they meant to or not. Like that's like, you can't avoid that. I don't think you separate yourself from it. So. Anyway, yeah, Omega Man, and then um, I think, oh gosh, which one's the one with Vincent Price? I feel like that one was the one that was like the most closely tied to it because it's like narration, just long-winded narration. Mm. Um, and then I'm I'm drawing a total blank on it, so that's fine. <laughs> I, you um, know what? I don't, I'm not even sure if I've seen that one. Oh uh, yeah. well. Which which is like shocking because I feel like I have seen everything Vincent Price has ever been in. It, well, he, he was one of those like. Did I dream this and make it up? Uh, no, I, I'm not. I don't think you. I mean, I have gaps in my my knowledge for sure. Uh, I, I no, now I have to. Now I have to know. Give me a moment. Last Man on Earth, 1964. Oh, you know Last Man yeah, on Earth. Okay. Yep. Okay. okay. Yep. I. I, I, I I don't think I've seen that one. Okay, well, I, yeah. it's the closest because it is just long-winded narration about him doing day-to-day -day tasks, and it's very boring. No offense. Uh, <laughs> um, because it is truly just a narrator, him narrating the actions he does, which is what happens in the book, but it makes sense in a book. Yeah. And it's different for the screen, and I think that's why we ended up with the uh, Robert Morgan of the Will Smith version. Right, right. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. he doesn't even have the same name. No. <laughs> um, I really dislike that I, movie. I really, really do. I like it, but it, you have to like it for something separate from the And maybe book. that's just my problem is, like, I can't, I can't separate <laughs> the two. You can't separate it. Yeah, I really can't. Yeah. yeah. It's, well, it's translated for a cultural moment, plus those beautiful landscape scenes of buildings overwrought with vines. I'm oh, here sure. for that yeah. always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we... Uh, 
I think the consensus is we all can appreciate I Am Legend. <laughs> um, Maybe on different, different on different levels. levels. At least the book, right? Oh, I um, love that book, though. I but do. we have a different view of Matheson's. Oh, man, we're gonna get into Hell House. Hell House. <laughs> um, oh man. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. You, go ahead. you heard us. You. you heard us talking about it, and you were I like, did. "I've definitely got some thoughts about I this." Do. So I'm like, "I've got to ask her." Then I've I, got to find out. I and I don't, I don't think she's alone because I know that some of our our Twitter followers also they're like, "Hell House is my favorite book," and I'm like, "Fucking how?" Because I have hot <laughs> yeah. takes. About that book. <laughs> I do too, though. I do too. So Hell House, uh, dude. Okay, so <laughs> I read Hell House quickly. I, I very quickly devoured Hell House, and I feel like it was it was entertaining and uh you know very um like I, I had to see where it was going so it worked on that front um the problem with hell house and i think that this is maybe my biggest insecurity as someone who has written something that is now out there for people to read is that hell house revealed more to me about matheson that i didn't like that i than i wanted <laughs> to know about matheson like oh, i wanted wow. right like i feel like it told me more about the author mm. than I wanted to know about him, <laughs> like as gotcha. a as a person. Um, so, like, like, what did you learn? Well, I mean, so, so I feel like it it, it went very out of its way to be shocking. Um, yes, and it, it goes. It's it's very much like a Rob Zombie film. I think, like like <laughs> oh, a literary, wow. like you know, like it's shock value. It's I, just yeah, shock right. value. Oh man, I want to uh, uh, go ahead. I, no, just I mean, <laughs> gosh, hot takes. Are you ready? <laughs> let's do it. Let's do hot it. Hot takes. Hot takes. Okay, so uh, I know that the the book was actually like Matheson's answer to Shirley Jackson, right? Because he, and he I read... love, I love. Sorry, Shirley Jackson. Jackson is the best <laughs> fucking novelist of the 20th century. I'm I'm just convinced. I'm inclined to agree. Yeah. So, like, he he reads this book, um, Haunting Hondo of Hill, Hill House, House, in the the 50s, right? Yeah. And and but he's too busy like being on fucking Twilight Zone or whatever, <laughs> like writing his other projects, <laughs> right. right? And so he Understood. never gets around to to actually writing Hell House, and he and then he delivers it in like 1970, mm -hmm. right? Um, many moons afterwards, but but it's his his like retort, his response to Shirley Jackson. And whereas I think that Shirley Jackson's book is startling because of its like emotional complexity, mm -hmm. and, um, and and I mean it's a it's and also unreliable a, narrator. It's, yeah. Oh yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. But definitely. It, it's also just a very um, it's it's another intra introspective book, right? Um, yes. And it, That's I, hard to adapt. It's, it's, it is. It's its adaptions have not done really well. Yeah. So I think that he reads this book and then it felt like his reaction was like, well, that's not fucking scary. Yes. Yes. And it's like you missed the whole <laughs> fucking point there, Matheson. This is exactly right. It. This is exactly right. And also, also, one of the things, sorry, I'm getting all like heated in my chair. Uh, so um, the other thing is that I feel like Shirley Jackson's uh, Haunting of Hill House is not just scary because the house is spooky, right? Sure. Uh, it's scary in the sense of manifestation. Like, how much do you dwell on something and does your dwelling on something make it happen? Mm. Um, so I think that is part of that that's tied in there. But Shirley Jackson's also captures the aimlessness that I think women felt mm. at the time. Mm -hmm. And your main character is someone who has dedicated her life to caring for her mother, 
who I think has recently died. Yeah, it's been yeah. a minute since I've read it, but like um, her mom has recently died and this is her first foray into the world. And right. she is shockingly naive and she is like, does not relate well to these other people because she's been in this codependently abusive relationship with mm -hmm. a mother who has been domineering her life. And all of this is before the book even starts, right? Yeah. And that's the person whose lens we are living through. And I feel like that anxiety captured the anxiety of a generation of women who mm -hmm. were like, what do I do with myself? Because like, I can't separate myself from my upbringing, from my duties, from my responsibilities, but there is a me inside here. Uh, and you see it from Shirley Jackson, you see it from several of the like female novelists of the era that are like, trying not to put their heads in ovens, honestly, right? Yeah. Or in some no, cases, right. actually putting their heads in ovens in the case of Sylvia Plath. But yeah. um, like, anyway, all that to say, Matheson, I feel like, saw that and was like, I can make this scary. And it's the most like, no offense, it's like the most dude thing to do. Like he's like, <laughs> My gosh. like yeah. And yeah. like, so yes, it just, it feels very like, if not misogynistic, it just feels like it missed the subtext. I mean, I, th I yeah. think it is. I think it is, it is straight up misogynistic. I mean, yeah, yeah I, I mean, so I, I have I'll a agree real, with that too. I have a real difficulty with um, uh, like sexual assault and depictions of sexual assault in um, as one in should. Horror. And, and I, I it's mean, oh, we could talk about that too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I no, have I mean, like it, it really. Um, I, I, I feel like sexual assault in horror is is it almost feels like a last resort. It, it feels like you're playing your hardest card mm -hmm. um, because it, it's, it's like, there's no other extreme we can really go to. Right. If we want to evoke real um, intense, you know, feelings of horror or something like that, especially if it's a, a woman character. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the, the lack of a woman's agency um, is, you know, like that's as, as far as you can go. And so many writers are just like, I'm going to push that button right. as much as I can. Right. And I think that it's it's really traumatic. It's very traumatizing. And I think that um, it's also just like, to a certain extent, I feel like it's a little uninventive. Yeah. Because it's, it's like, Agreed. it's just malicious to a point, right? And I felt like Matheson does this really poorly in that book where his, his, his women are only defined by their sexual dimension. Yes. And they're um, very flat otherwise. And there's no, yeah, there's nothing else to them. And so right. the horror is, is um, it, because he strips away all of their agency right. completely. They don't even have agency to begin with. And then he repeatedly sexually assaults these two, the two, the two women, yep. women in that book. Mm -hmm. it, it frustrated the hell out of yeah, me. Yeah. Yeah. So again, it revealed more to me, I think about Matheson than I think he meant for it to, right. uh, which is again, yeah. upsetting. And I'm like, dang it, Matheson. Cause I, love lots of other uh <laughs> things of his work too but to your point about that um that is something that i i have hot takes on right like you see that horror and fantasy especially mm -hmm. uh both very heavy-handedly lean on like sexual assault of women like that's right. always the thing which is also a bit trivializing because like men are also also can be sexually assaulted so like we, we push a very clear narrative that like it only happens to women and also it's always like secondary character off screen like it yeah. gets your it gets you lit up but it's like never about that person um which is something that like honestly i was trying to do in wild things will roam is to actually look at the people behind mm. the stuff like like books Horror and fantasy love to traumatize their characters and never actually explore 
what it looks like to be traumatized right. <laughs> or like how that like yeah, I mean, affects somebody's ability to relate to that, other people. That your book kind of tries to deal with this uh, yep. quite a bit, and I know Jeremy, like your book, also deals with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mindful of scorpions. Yeah, yeah. There we go. Product placement. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I, I mean, I, I, we've talked about this a little bit just privately. I don't know that we've actually talked about it on the show, but you know, p- part of I think what you were doing with that book was was again playing with that idea of agency and and the gradual loss of agency through all of the characters and then how they try to deal with the fact that they lost that agency right and i know i jump into um you know we're talking about sexual assault women and i know spoiler alert the the main female character i feel like she's she's well-rounded i mean i feel like she's a strong character but Mm -hmm. she does has that hit hit that point when this happens to her um this was not something I felt like when I decided to write that scene. It wasn't something that I was like, I want to glorify this kind of violence. Right. I don't want to, you know, make this look, you know, I'm not trying to just shock the horror or shock the people because what's been on my mind, what, what made me start writing that book is looking at how trauma affects people. Right. So each of my characters deal with the trauma that's inflicted on them in different ways. And as I've planned like a series of three books for this, they're going to be dealing with the events of the first book, even in the later books. They're, it's still right. going to be impacting them. It and doesn't it's, go away. And yeah. I, I think the the full arc of the story, when I see this, this woman, this female character that I tried to create, a, a very strong person, um, that what happens to her in that first book is only a small part of her. It's how she, she overcomes it and becomes the stronger person sure. that's going to be really kind of showcased throughout the rest of the series. So. Sure. And I think there's a lot to that um, that character development aspect, but I also feel like it, and this is something I really struggled with in Wild Things Were Up. So there was like a point where I was like, there was there was two moods in the book. There was like this before, and then there was after. And like I yeah. couldn't, I couldn't, I kept trying to cross that bridge in a different way. Like I kept trying to write different kinds of scenes that would fill that, that space, yeah. that transition, and there was nothing else. Like this is... Like that was what it always was. It was like I couldn't couldn't write around it. It just died anytime I tried to write that scene any other way. Like it was like, nope, this is this is what happens and this sucks. Um but part of that too is that at least for me, I want to also explore the fact that like it's not just about overcoming things that happen to you. Like people I think we like that idea. Like we love a good um, underdog story where it's like, oh, you Mm -hmm. can be traumatized and then like rise above it and like overcome, you know, anything that's happened to you, you know, because of these things. It's like, well, no, you overcome in spite of these things. Um, But then also, uh, you know, like what what does it look like to get there? You don't just like wake up and like turn on a dial and be like, I am going to be resilient now. Like you're like, no, this sucks. (laughs) And like... (laughs) And And it's never 100% either. I mean, I don't care how the character in real life even is able to bring their their life back together. That trauma will manifest itself in some way throughout the rest of their lives. Exactly. 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 It sticks around, right? Uh, And and it has very far-reaching effects Mm -hmm. in in ways that that you don't, you know, necessarily immediately recognize. Right, and on interpersonal relationships. And I think that's the thing. Like, And we see that or at least I tried to convey that with like Lash in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Like you have a character who is, again, he comes across very much like this kind of aggressive yeah. asshole. 
Yeah. Uh, and then you get inside of his head, and he's really very, very traumatized from his past and his upbringing. And, like, all of these things are sort of these defenses that he's putting up without even realizing that he's doing it. Um, and he has kind of that envy, I think, for his brother that, like, people just like him. And he can just walk in and be likable. And Lash is like, I, I don't know what that looks like. Yeah. Like, that's, anyway. Yeah. I, um, you know, to your point about that, about horror and fantasy, uh, you know, kind of showcasing or highlighting this kind of violence and this trauma and, and that sort of thing. I'm trying to remember the book I read because I, I, I want to be clear. I mean, this is so cliche that mm-hmm. female authors are also using this. Like I, I, for one, I don't like doing, you know, as a writer, I don't, I didn't want to, ins- like I said, I didn't want to insert that as right. someone who's like, here it is for shock value. I wanted right. to have some resonance. But I can't stand those kinds of stories where it has either no resonance or what was it? You and I have talked about like your wife reading like these romance kind of novels. She's real real into like super spicy romance. And and there's a lot of like, um, yeah, (laughs) there's a lot of that kind of traumatizing kind of sexual assault. So. uh, uh, but oh, okay. I, I, I was yeah. thinking about the vampire when I read that was like this. That was written by a female author also. I can't. Where the girl falls in love with the vampire after he sexually assaults her right. like multiple times. Y'all, they're There's like some, this. And I'm like, this is super, disgusting. Yeah, right. But it's super, it's super. So uh, I learned a term uh, like internalized mo- misogyny. And I was yeah. like, interesting. And there is yeah. like, but, but okay. And, and now we've gone down a rabbit hole and I apologize. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm ready not, for it. I'm yeah, not yeah. an expert on any of these things. I am not a professional on any of these things. I'm somebody who likes to read uh, and, and make sure that I understand a character before I put anything down about them. Um, but there is very much a sense of control that someone feels by taking ownership of a situation that they have no control over, oh, if yeah. that yeah. makes sense. And I think yep. what you see in these like romance novels are the ones what's what's called dubious consent i think or like yeah, where yeah. yeah there you go yeah um it, what you are seeing is almost the like inverse of that is like women having taking control of this like fantasy mm-hmm. that has been pushed on mm. us culturally for so long like there's sort of this weird that and, like you're they're in control even in these situations where they are very obviously not in control at all. Right. Um, right. I don't know. I think I mean, this is just it. There's so much to unpack here, right? And right. Uh, um, right. So, so just to kind of contextualize a little bit, uh, because I don't want to necessarily speak for my wife, because I think she has Understood. a lot of like very complex opinions that I don't necessarily understand or share. Right. Sure. Um, but I am privy to a lot of conversation between her and her uh, best friend yeah. who lives like four houses down, right? <laughs> they come over awesome. and they talk about these books very loudly from my kitchen <laughs> almost, almost every weekend. So sure, sure. I'll just be, you know, like chilling in the back, <laughs> read my own book. And they're, they're like loudly discussing like, but it wasn't rape at the time, you know? And like, it's... It's real intense, sure, right? Yeah. It's very intense. But but she she talks a lot about you know some of these um, some of these situations in her spicy books where <laughs> there's you know some dubious consent or you know yeah. something like that, and you know it's it, I think it's really interesting how her perspective is like 
you know the the romance for some of these really complicated relationships mm. is um I, I i think it it's it's perceived differently by her based on you know kind of what she romanticizes yeah. about relationships and so many of these stories i think aren't necessarily about like oh well he assaulted her it, it's it, it's more complicated than that right, it's more right. complex for the characters than that absolutely uh he was out of control i think that's the idea is the it, lack of control yeah yeah mm-hmm. right it, it, and, and like but that stems desire. from like a yes mm-hmm. like a, a, an un an uncontrollable desire for the other person yeah and yeah. and um there, it, a lot of her books are framed with like a, a kind of like a polyamorous relationship where okay. like the the woman is with they call him a reverse harem oh right, right. yeah like, <laughs> yeah the yeah. woman has She's like just like a whole a whole slew, slew of, of, of men. other right. lovers that she which is she really the dream enjoys. honestly right, exactly. i think that's <laughs> yeah. that's the idea there you just <laughs> got, a, whole genre you got a man for every season yeah right? you know yeah. just what are you feeling that day exactly and again i think that that's that's a response to culturally well, men being able to have effectively harems or wives and mistresses right, and it right. being like a culturally accepted yeah. <laughs> and, and it's really important that there's there's no sense of like you have to in these books you don't have to pair up with someone else for your happily ever after right mm-hmm. like the whole concept is like um they can all live harmoniously yeah in this like kind of broad sweeping reverse harem relationship or whatever and i, I don't know if it, it, it for her it feel it fulfills um this like fantasy of uh men without like being, ego yes <laughs> yeah no, that's exactly right that's of, exactly of a woman right. who is appreciated for being herself in in such a way that it it kind of proliferates through this community of lovers right right, right. and there's like just this mutual admiration and respect for for one another it's very utopian yeah yeah. yeah 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 because again men without egos um and i mean that in the <laughs> nicest way possible <laughs> in this room full of men <laughs> no and like i i don't mean to come across any type of way on that front uh but like that's i think that's the idea right is that these that in these stories, these and I'm saying this like I I don't I don't read them so I can't speak speak to them. But uh, from my understanding, is that um, I'm sorry I'm not gonna say don't I haven't yet yeah haven't yet <laughs> read them. Uh, you know life takes you in wonder wondrous directions and I don't want to commit to anything. Um, but I haven't yet read uh, anything in that that vein. But I think a lot of it there is that the idea that there are these multiple like people in your life that respect you and then also are not competing with one another or are not like, you know, it's not vying for. And I I think too, it love triangle. That's um, why we see love triangles in stories too, I think. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of the stories that, that she reads anyway, there's like, there is a beginning for the character arc that these female protagonists kind of go through Mm -hmm. where, a lot of the relationships they they begin with are kind of predatory mm-hmm. or they lack a kind of agency and and the fulfillment of a reverse harem is is really like it's a complete restoration of a woman's agency sure right like she's able to choose among any lover she wants yeah right and, and i think that that element of choice is a really powerful catharsis yeah for a feeling of a lack of agency at other parts of life. I think it's interesting though, because again, even in that space, you're talking about like lovers. And I think it's interesting that that is how we would define our our interpersonal relationships. That like that, to your point, right? right. She's come fully 
fully full circle uh, as far as agency goes. But when we're talking about agency, it's almost always like sexually connotative. Like the, oh, there's sure. not like th- that's the story always. There's always a sexual component to that. It's never in, just in like these books for sure. Right, yeah. right. It's never just like oh, like you have fulfilled yourself like right. in life. <laughs> it's like <laughs> just fulfilling yourself with different dudes, which is totally fine. Um, but it's just a different a different energy. It is an interesting allegorical reading for sure yes yeah yeah. Yeah. and i think uh so so to me i feel like that is kind of the answer to this same question that we were addressing which is the the horror and fantasy lean heavily on like robbing people of their agency yeah and all people to be fair they do i mean that's usually what happens in horror right is that like the scary part is that it somehow some way We've all been robbed of our agency, and a guy with a chainsaw is going to come right, yeah. and and take us out. So I think there's, that's the biggest fear I think culturally we have is being out of control, yeah. and that's what these books do is allow you to be out of control safely. <laughs> <laughs> so you've done a little bit of work um, in graphic design and yeah. produced, uh, you know, some book covers. Um, how did you kind of uh, like get into that aspect of you know, book creation. Yeah, accidentally. Um, I think as with all great things. So I, I started with my own cover, started with my own stuff. Um, because at the time I was getting ready to query and I was like, well, I have an idea of what I want it to look like. And I was learning new programs and I thought it'd be cool to just do that. Right. Um, and so I started working on a cover for wild things will roam. That's actually the cover that's on the book right now. Um, and I, I've tried to redo it a couple times and I, I keep coming back to like, no, I like this one. So, um, you know, why fix something that's not broken? Um, and then that space, so I, I had signed on originally with a company called Episodic. That was my original publisher. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of Kindle Vela before Kindle Vela was a thing. Uh, and the idea was to deliver episodes that people could read on commute. And so their big target demo was like commuters, people in cars that were going to be able to, or I mean, on buses and trains. Mm-hmm could read an episode um but then of course the pandemic hit and people stopped commuting so there was really just like a right you know just a, a tragic missed timing there um but one of the things that ended up happening in that space is that i i made a book trailer for myself and then it was like well could we get these for some of the other books i was like absolutely i don't know what i'm doing so sure like no promises on the quality <laughs> of the content but i'm happy to work on it um and so started doing that and then that ended up just like branching into covers and other things. And it took me, uh, honestly, two or three years of having actual book covers that I have designed out on people's shelves before I was like, oh yeah, I do this sort of professionally. Like I, (laughs) that sounds so ridiculous. Like there's like four or five books out there that I've designed covers for. And I'm like, oh no, 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 it's a hobby. Um, (laughs) But so this year, um, back to my husband and his infinite wisdom, he was like, hey, you should probably just take it seriously. Like you spend time on it. You're good at it. You should just be unapologetic and be like, oh, hey, like this is a thing I do. So I'm working on that. I'm not great at it yet. I'm still very much like, uh-huh. I'm pretending to be actually good at things. But like, no, I, I've worked at it. I've learned the skill. Um, and so I'm trying to be better about owning that and saying, hey, I have a skill set. Um, I mean, you, you a particular set of skills. You created an LLC for this, right? I, I mean, did, yeah. I tried yeah. to verb that in the email. I tried. She yeah, LLC'd, LLC'd herself. Myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I was um, sitting there like, what does that mean? 
<laughs> yeah, so I did. I created a, I have, I have my own company is what he's saying. I have a small business uh, that I run in addition to the gym that is also a small business that I run uh, and in addition to the actual job and the kids and all the things. Uh, I actually, y'all did the Bram Stoker episode and you were talking about his trapeze act. Like, yeah, and yeah. I was like, yo, this resonates. Like we could have been friends, I feel like, <laughs> in passing because we wouldn't have actually had time to hang out. We just would have like, I see you're doing good things. Have a good day and like walk on our own merry way. Um, there would have been no time for conversation. Uh, Didn't you say you also wanted to be referred to as trapeze artist or something? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, that's <laughs> it's on my opportunity. No, it's not a missed opportunity. You know, I've got I've got a long life to live. So I, I <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, uh, if I die tomorrow, that I won't know and it won't matter. But but um, I I like to set these like later in life goals because I. I you guys probably also feel this. I think culturally we feel this. There is this sense of impending doom that's like we're running out of time, right? And so like if I want to do a Every thing, day. I have to do it now because I'm running out of time. And I am trying to really lean into the idea that like, I mean, if I do run out of time, again, doesn't matter. But if I don't run out of time, then like I need to have goals for myself for like, so like sewing, for example, that's like a, in my sure. 40s. Like I'm going to learn to sew in my 40s. And I'm gonna do an Iron Man in my fifties. Um, like I have go- like I'm I just, like, oh, okay, Kaylee. Future, I just, I just Kaylee. pictured me, you, Trevor, and Curtis all in our sixties, like with the gray hair, balding, you know, yeah. just our easy comfort trousers, and we're all trapezing. I really hope <laughs> I'm not balding. I, like, well, I, not maybe I will no, be. no, we would be balding. <laughs> like, the, the three I mean, of us would be balding. Know, balding. I guess, yeah, because like, I'm, I'm, I'm the bald one. <laughs> no, no. Your hair would just be in one of those like old lady kind of perms. Sure, right, right, yeah, yeah. And I'm Asian, so it'll be like I'll be like a little old Asian lady by then. Like I transit, I will we'll be all young be trapezing, until I'm not. We'll the, and then it'll just be steep, <laughs> steep decline. I just oh had God. a birthday, so I'm like having like heat. Okay, so same. Here. I also had a birthday recently, and it really, it's like, mm. and I'm I. Happy I, birthday to you both. I understand that I am not actually old. Old time is a construct. It means nothing. Whatever. But like this year felt older than other years have felt. And I was like, oh, shit. That's um, exactly what Trevor said. He was spent yeah. the entire time we went to the movie, and he spent the entire time yelling at these kids. Uh, no joke. We went, we went to see a movie. Okay. We went to see Uma. Okay. Thurman. And, uh, yeah. Uma That's going to be my joke. And there were these, there were these like, 10-year-olds or 11-year-olds. Uh, Whipper like, snappers. They were sitting right behind us. Stay off my lawn. And every 40 seconds, they would just, like, they'd get Kick up and they'd go running across the theater because there were only four of us in there. Right. And the whole time, it was like, it was on my birthday. And I, I just, I could feel me summoning the get off my lawn kind yeah. of, like, old person. I was yeah. like, but you kids, shut the up! You know, I was just like so angry. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I there's like been a real like cyclical reckoning for me that like you you do become your parents and it's not the way you think. Like you like everybody says that right? Like oh you're gonna you'll become your mother one day and like what you realize is that your mom was also very tired and was doing her best. And you're like oh huh there that is go figure. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's there's that. I feel that. And and same thing with like like the idea of like things that used to seem like so boring. Like, oh, I hope I never get there. And now I realize that like, no, you get there and you're happy to be there because you're tired. And again, you're like, I'm just doing my best. I will stay in tonight and drink coffee or wine on my back porch because I pay for this porch, damn it. <laughs> I just, well, like, like, there's just a different... 
different energy. <laughs> For me, it was how can somebody sleep in the middle of the day when like they've slept all night, and now it's like I'm going home. I'm like, oh, it's about nap time. He leaves. Oh, man. He leaves work, and as he's out the door, he's like, I'm going to take a nap, knowing that I have to be there for another like four hours <laughs> i so i low-key like i'm i'm narcoleptic so one of the symptoms of that is excessive daytime sleepiness uh which is the literal <laughs> term for it where you're like i have i'm excessively sleepy <laughs> um and like i learned at one point like i i don't know i think i had a epiphany one night because i used to come home and nap like at lunch and then i would come home from work and nap also uh and i i had this like epiphany that was just like i'm gonna be tired whether I vacuum my living room or not. Like, I'm going to be just as tired. And then I was like, so I might as well clean this living room. And, like, it was literally, like, a change in my whole personality. Like, I went from being someone who was like, man, I would, but I'm just so sleepy all the time, to being like, no, literally, I have a superpower. I can do anything because I'm always tired. So there's no there's no threshold that's like, I need to wait until I'm rested. I will never be rested. So I can just do everything all the time and just sleep less because it doesn't matter anyway like that's really blowing uh, my mind over here that's 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 the uh that's the energy i bring to the room so there's more hours in my day to answer your question about all of the all of the hats uh i have more hours in the day i sleep less awesome it awesome. doesn't matter anyway <laughs> it's terrible sleep i hallucinate stuff that's not really there so it's like it's not really useful anyway that's kind of how i convince myself of of any decision i make i i think from the the standpoint of someone watching on alpha centauri right? mm -hmm. i will always have done the thing that i'm about to do okay that is so real i yes <laughs> i am i am living in this mountainscape and i am just the future exists it was deep wasn't it curtis yeah. curtis no. is here everybody he, he's, he's he's just taking a back seat but he is here today i stole a mic uh, yeah, no, but you're, I, so I also use that Slaughterhouse Five reference as my like vision for time yeah. immemorial. And I'm like, that's fine. That's exactly right. The future exists. I just have to get myself to it. Yeah. Like, yeah. that's right. So, what's next for you, speaking of futures? Yeah. So, uh, I am working on the sequel to Wild Things Will Roam and the prequel to Wild Things Will Roam simultaneously. And they're kind of two sides of the same book, even though one of them takes place in the immediate aftermath of Wild Things Will Roam, like, literally picks up five minutes later. Um, and then the other one is a, a prequel um, that is actually set when Liv is a baby. So, oh, uh, and, well, yeah, it's more of, it's it's been really fascinating. It is more of a um, magic, magical realism, um, women's fiction kind of novel. Yeah. So uh, the premise of it is that Dr. Danielle Adams, she's a psychiatrist, and uh, she is kind of in the midst of slash on the verge of an affair with the, the love of her life who she met when she was 10 years old. And she's got these two small children and she's like trying to do all of the things, right? Which is something, like I said, like that part's semi-autobiographical. I'm like, oh, I am trying to do all the things except have an affair. Um, but the other <laughs> stuff, the other stuff I'm doing. Uh, and uh, so, so the premise of this novel is that she was born with a freckle in her eye which is a gift from a Visayan goddess, which is a Filipino goddess, um, Delika Mata, who basically puts a freckle in the eyes of children who are gifted with the sight of past, future, and present. Mm. Maybe not in that order. Uh, and so, but Danny is a first-generation American. Her dad's from the Philippines. And so she kind of grew up sort of straddling that line of poverty, um, like the, the immigrant upbringing. Um, she's a, an American daughter, 
which is something her dad calls her kind of um, cruelly, right? Because she she is too American for his taste, but also it's kind of a derogatory term. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, and so, anyway, so she's she's kind of overcoming this and like having to be this feeling of having to be like better in order to be seen, right? Um, but she has this like vast destiny that she's completely removed for it from because it's just not culturally ingrained in her. So so in in the story, the premise is that she has these very vivid imaginings, right? Which are premonitions, but she doesn't know that because she was not raised to be a shaman. She was raised to be like, you know, a an American person. <laughs> like she has a, a regular she was raised to get a degree and, you know, do well and try to rise up. And so so she's sort of straddling the strange line of destiny, which is like trying to force her hand like there are these gods and goddesses who are trying to push her but she doesn't know that they exist and she doesn't have that lens at all and so like what that mismatch looks like for her and then eventually how that leads to some of the the events of the collapse so Mm. it's different it's a different genre than the collapse but it's a very natural prequel i think cool Um, very cool so yeah interesting yeah so and i'm getting to explore that filipino folklore that way which is real real fun for me it is amazing so how can people find info on your next projects online yeah uh so you can find me at kmwestwrites.com um and then on basically any of the social media places at km underscore west underscore and you have to put that second one or else you end up with like a real estate company out in california (laughs) Uh, so uh yeah so there's there's double the underscore but yeah so you can find me there uh and then km west creative is my llc is my company so Awesome. Um, yeah, so you can find me there. Terrific. Maybe this yeah. has been a really, really, really fun interview. We have oh, yeah. really enjoyed having you on. Thank you. And it went a different direction than I expected, but I'm happy to be here. Thanks, guys. <laughs> we we love it. And we definitely, we I, I can think I can speak for all of us that we would love to have you back. Um, Absolutely. Maybe, whenever we can. Maybe by the time uh, one of these next couple projects come I out. I would love that. I 100%. I love it over here, too, in, in Fayetteville, so. Yeah. You've, well, you've sold me. Just so people don't think we're lying, would you uh, hand the mic to Curtis and so he can say hi, hi to prove that he's here? Hi, everybody. See, Curtis <laughs> is here, everyone. Had um, a bit of a rough day yesterday, so I'm going Yeah, he's kind of laying low. So. I like this. Yeah. That, that's your radio DJ voice, for sure. Yeah, right yeah, there. when I'm yeah. on the radio, <laughs> this is how I talk. Uh, Same. Same. Gotta, I sound exactly like that when I'm on the radio. Yeah. Today well, we're playing all the greatest hits. Yeah. <laughs> Next up, we got some Led Zeppelin, followed by some ACDC. So then hang Peter in there, Gabriel. folks. On Sunday, <laughs> Sunday, Gabriel. Sunday. <laughs> thank you so much we've enjoyed having you and uh we will uh all be back later we're working on the closing so i like it, I like it. <laughs>